0: Everything I'd done has been around building B2C solutions, building communities, listening to customers, and I didn't do that because I understood a business model. Like I said, I started doing that when I was 15. It just made a lot of sense that if someone said, hey, I really wanted this thing in my video game, there was demand for it that
1: I would do it. This episode of the Startup Podcast is brought to you by Coda. If you want a platform that empowers your startup to strategize, plan and track goals effectively, you can get started with Coda today for free and get a $1000 credit at coda.io/tsp. That's c o d a.io/tsp for the Startup Podcast to get started for free and get a $1000 credit. At coda.io/tsp. This episode of the Startup Podcast is brought to you by Vanta. You might know that sinking feeling. You're about to land a big contract when they ask about compliance. SOC 2, ISO, PCI, Essential 8. You've just snatched defeat from the jaws of victory. Not anymore. Vanta massively accelerates your compliance efforts and allows you to get those life-changing deals back on track. Don't wait until it's panic stations, though. Get started with Vanta today. They're offering 20% off their prices just for TSP listeners. Do yourself a favor. Hit pause. Go to Vanta.com slash TSP. That's V-A-N-T-A dot com to get that 20% off. You're listening to The Startup Podcast. This is an educational episode. In-depth masterclasses about the concepts essential to building, running, and investing in Silicon Valley-style startups. Whether you're a founder, investor, or operator in a startup, you'll gain insights into the principles that power high growth disruption, the same way Facebook, Google, and Uber do it. The conversation starts now.
2: Hey, I'm Chris. I'm Genev. And I'm Matt. And on today's show, we're going to do something a little bit different, which is a bit of a case study in how a startup rotated from B2B to 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 B2C. Now, we have Matt Home on the show. He's the CEO and co-founder of YouPay, an awesome multiplayer shopping product. He'll tell us more about it in a second. He posted on LinkedIn about moving from B2B to B2C in his business and how it improved the outcomes. It really embodied a lot of what we talk about on the show. So we thought we'd get him on the show to discuss his thoughts as a case study. Now, a little bit of a disclosure. I am a former advisor and a shareholder in YouPay. So we get that out of the way up front. Matt, welcome to the show. Yeah, cheers, Chris. Great to be here. So Matt, I really wanted to unpack this post you wrote on LinkedIn, really kind of coming out of the closet as a B2C company and talking about the benefits of having done so. Let's start at the very beginning. Tell us a little bit about yourself and about Upay.
0: Yeah, sure thing. So I was thinking about this earlier and it's effectively my 25-year overnight success story. So dating myself a little bit, I won't give you the full life story, but the key thing for me is that I realized I was an entrepreneur late 90s when I started a website on geocities.com. Remember geocities, you'd get two megabytes of free space and you could somehow build a website. So I managed to build a website about a video game I was playing at the time, FIFA 98, the soccer game. And back then, the game didn't have any licenses. So if you were playing as Manchester United or Liverpool, you'd just get like a red jersey. So I figured out a way to basically patch the game, built these little bitmaps so you could, for example, have an authentic Manchester United jersey. So then I started uploading these things to my website and people started downloading them. And then my inbox was filled with other zip files of community members saying, hey, Matt, here's all the kits for Spain. Can you add that to your website? So inadvertently, while still in high school, I'd kind of built this community of fans and started acquiring thousands of customers in my spare time and you know it was like free AdSense so I was getting like I remember getting my first check for 12 bucks which just blew my mind and then within a couple of months it was like twelve hundred dollars so you know just kind of classic internet free.com I often say that my first website had a terrible Google ranking that's because it predated Google so that's how old the <laughs> bloody thing was but yeah so that was me at the very beginning went on then to actually work at EA so EA figured out that this is early days but not too many companies really embraced their customers. Look, why don't we speak to the fans? Why don't we speak directly to the customers? And where are those customers hanging out? And it turns out they were hanging out on Matt's website. So ended up getting a job at EA, worked at Electronic Arts for four years, actually making the video games, a real amazing experience for a young person, actually becoming part of the team, building the video game that I grew up playing. Did that for a good four years, came back to Australia because that was over in Canada. Started a web development company, building websites for small businesses, built a lot of Shopify websites, and that kind of segued into the concept for UPay. And UPay really came to be in early COVID times. So we'll speak a lot about how it initially had a B2B mindset, but that was primarily driven by the boom of e-commerce, the boom of buy now, pay later, vendors and integrations, and really just my background and understanding of the space. So it gave me the idea and I realized I had a team that could actually execute it and build the product.
2: And what is the original insight for Upay itself? What was the problem you saw and what was the product you initially built that was a B2B product?
0: So during COVID, it was back when all the sport was off. You know, remember when there was just nothing on TV, like literally a big sports guy. So there was just no football or anything on TV. The only thing that existed was horse racing, which I wasn't really into at the time, but I just needed something to do on a Saturday afternoon. So I had a bet on a horse race and ended up having $500 on my sports bet MasterCard for the first time ever. So messaged my partner, my wife and said, Hey, I've got some money on the card. Why don't I buy you a gift or something? So she said, okay. And she picked out something on her phone. So she had her shopping cart ready to go, something that she wanted. And she was like, okay, what I'll do is I'll just copy and paste my shopping cart. I'll send it to you. And coming from a development background, I knew that that wouldn't be possible because that cart was saved to her device. There was no quick and easy way of her doing the shopping and me doing the paying. And it's like, you know, I don't want to do the shopping. Like you've done all that. I just want to make payment. So she was like, why don't you pay? So not only was that the concept, but it was also the origin of the name. And yeah, it was just one of those kind of aha moments where we were like, oh, wait a second, if this works well for you, maybe this could work for the kids. And what about all these creators online who are also got all these fans who want to buy them things and just kind of spawn from there. And like you alluded to going back to the topic for the show, it was really following the path of pay and the buy now, pay later providers where we said, look, if these guys have been so successful integrating into all these e-commerce merchants, why don't we follow the same path? Why don't we go to the merchants and integrate one by one? And that was the original path to scaling the product was to follow the path of the buy now, pay later vendors.
2: Right, and the idea was, let's say I'm an influencer, I'm a creator, I'm a spouse, I'm an employee at a company, I can go about my shopping experience on these e-commerce sites. And rather than going through the checkout and paying for the items, I can somehow save my cart for other people to browse and pay for. And so I create a kind of you pay shopping cart that someone else can pay for, either for the whole cart or parts of the cart. In some ways, you might think of it as a wish list, but it was really a complete cart. And as you said, you started as an integration play. You go to each and every one of these e commerce stores and integrate with them. And so the trick there is to make that as easy as possible, as delightful as possible. So tell us a little bit about. How you thought that would go as a B2B integration, buy now, pay later style, go to market strategy versus what actually played out.
0: Yeah. So it made a lot of sense from my perspective. It made a lot of sense from everybody who was investing, buying into the concept that naturally when you looked at couple of factors. One, e-commerce was booming. So every e-commerce brand was scaling, growing, and they were really open-minded to new integration. So remember kind of peak COVID when you'd go to the checkout and I always said it almost looked like a NASCAR race. it would literally be like 30 ways you could pay and where do I start? So in other words, amazing adoption from the e-commerce brands, which like, yeah, sure. We'll give anything a go. This is easy. Everything's up and to the right at the moment. So sure. Why not? Come on in. And then secondly, Buy Now, Pay Later at that time was kind of the golden child of Australian tech and business. It was like, look at these guys, they're so successful. You'd be crazy not to follow the same path to market. So naturally, we did exactly that. And look, we had success. We had some early adopters. We had some big brands like Culture Kings and LSKD and Honey Burdett come on board. And really, we did begin to scale that way. But largely, everything shifted. So coupled with the economy shifting, being able to support an early stage startup with capital. E-commerce shifted. So all of a sudden, all of the e-commerce brands were like, hey, wait a second, maybe we need to get a little bit focused here. So this whole e-commerce game isn't that easy. Maybe we need to consolidate that checkout experience. So might not necessarily be as open to trying new things. And then fundamentally, we are not a buy now, pay later solution. So when you look at the value proposition of buy now, pay later, it's a brilliant model for customers. Hey, we'll give you free money. Who wants to perhaps 75% of their order paid for? Yeah, sure. I'll sign up for that. Whereas you pay is a beautiful solution, but the reality is you need to find another human being to pay for your order. And when there is a use case for that, it's magnificent. Like I said, when there's a partner use case, when there's a parent's use case, it's awesome, but it's just not as easily adopted. And so we were really dependent on the brands to educate the customers. And so naturally when those brands are distracted, just trying to get back to business basics and kind of got vendor fatigue, we couldn't rely on them. So we almost had to take it on ourselves to say, well, look, good news is we have been successful in a large number of brands. We do have customers. We've got hundreds of thousands of people now who have told us they love the product. Why don't we start talking to them? And it was kind of the realization that we could effectively, like you should do in any business, you can cut out the middleman. If you can circumnavigate an entire step by not being dependent on the B to B to C and just go B to C straight to the source why not do it? And we kind of came out over a period of time, we transitioned and realized that we are a B2C product and we should have been like that from day one, but it just took time for us to realize it. And in more recent times, we've fully embraced it. And it's, yeah, it's been night and day since we made that shift.
2: Yeah, I remember a call. You called me with one of your team members. And I remember we had a discussion where you were describing this transition and you asked me, you know, what, what do we call this? Is this B2B or b 2 b to c or B2C or some other thing? And I'm like, dude, this is B2C. It's just B2C. It's straight up B2C. you know, like, like, well, what about this option for these e-commerce sites to integrate us? And I'm like, there's an option for YouTube videos to be embedded on third-party sites, but it's still a B2C play, right? So I think here's the interesting thing, right? Like we can get lost in the alphabet soup of B2B, B2B to cb B to,
1: B to C, B2C, but really what this is about, as I read it, Matt, is it's about distribution. So what you've got here is your end customer, right? The consumer. And you started with, I guess, a classic B2B to, B to C play. And what that means is to say, well, instead of trying to find our customers ourselves, instead of trying to show the value of what we offer directly to our customers, we're going to partner with a whole bunch of other businesses and hope they do it for us. Right, And on paper, in a spreadsheet, it seems magnificent because you're like, oh, okay, you know, this company has 10,000 customers. This company has 100,000 customers. We add it all together and it looks fantastic, right? You're like, we can reach hundreds of thousands, millions of customers. They're going to sell our product for us. Zero cost of distribution. We're just going to sit back and the money will start rolling in. And of course, it very rarely works out that way because nobody is as motivated at or as good at selling your product as you are yourself. And so you can say it's about cutting out the middleman, To me, it's even more about saying, I am going to find the people who actually are going to use my product. I'm going to sell to them. I'm going to do my own distribution. I'm not going to rely on other people because they will let me down. Yeah, I think like one of
0: the key things, Yanev, is that we
1: were dependent and
0: basically sitting there every day, literally coming in and going, hey, I hope some of the merchants, hope some of the brands are talking about you pay. What can we do to kind of instigate that? Whereas we just needed to take the destiny into our own hands. That's the key thing. And as I said earlier, if you can just circumnavigate an entire, like take out the middleman and jump to the chase and get straight to the point, why wouldn't you? So from my perspective, everything I do in business, it's very logical. If it makes sense, it's common sense, just do it. And in this case, it wasn't so much really about studying a specific business model or strategically doing something. It's just doing what made sense. Just go straight to your customers and get to the finish line quicker.
2: Yeah, unfortunately, it's not common sense it's not intuitive to most people most of the time right traditional business thinking is especially i would say outside of hotbeds like silicon valley there are these behemoths these incumbent players who own the user they own some supply chain they have some unfair lock on the world And it's easier, better, cheaper, faster to partner with them to deliver value to their users. And the problem is that that is somewhat illusory and somewhat false when what you're trying to do is disruptive to the status quo, or is novel and hard to understand, or is not necessarily their number one or number two priority, and it is your number one or number two priority. And maybe the last case where it's not necessarily a useful approach is when what you're delivering is more valuable to the end user than it is to the business you're trying to partner with.
0: Exactly. We spent so much time just trying to justify the value proposition. So we were really selling you pay as a customer acquisition tool to the merchants. So we would say you could get two customers for the price of one, which is, as you alluded to, still a value proposition to the merchants. We were really trying to push that message that you could get the shopper and the payer and it just wasn't necessarily resonating putting us to the top of the pile when it came to solutions that would convert. But the value proposition to the end customers was magnificent. And they really just said to us, we just want more of this. Almost like don't over-manufacture the product. Just let us create a wish list, as you alluded to, for anything we want on the internet. And let us share that and create a safe and secure way for someone to pay for it. So we were like, wow, we probably got a bit too in depth and into the weeds and trying to build this beautiful, detailed product that basically did everything for you. When at the end of the day, the customers were just like, I kind of just want PayPal with photos. okay. Well, that's, <laughs> that's easy. We can do that.
2: Yeah. And, and oftentimes this over-engineering is inspired by these partners yeah. who say, it has to do this and it has to do that. And we need these analytics and we need these integrations. We need this workflow. And that's why starting from B to B to C is not a path typically to B to C because you spend all of that time investing in what the other B wants. And it's often not what the user wants. And so it ends up being this gigantic distraction. They take you down all of these roads, which are actually quite destructive to your business. They want it to be white label. They want it to be enterprise grade. They want it to do all these integrations and it's just not what you want. So I would describe what you're saying Matt as you were disabused of the illusion of the faster, better, cheaper distribution strategy through B2B2C, right? You had this beautiful thing for the Cs, for the consumers, for the end users. And you realized in a way that was, you know, in a timely way, in a way that most founders don't realize in your position, that actually this value prop is really about the users. We don't want to compromise on that. And that these distribution partners are really getting in our way versus helping. And so tell us about the new B2C model. How did you go about rotating the product, the team, the revenue modeling and your board and your investors? This is a really hard thing to do and there's a lot of really common objections. So tell us yes. about the journey that you went on to make this rotation.
0: Oh, absolutely. So You're right, because the vision, my initial pitch when I walked into boardrooms and presented to investors was that we were going to become the third payment segment in e-commerce as instant payment methods, as buy now, pay later, and there's going to be a third payment segment in UPay and shared payments or multiplayer shopping. Further to that, we were going to become the first form of funding at the checkout that wasn't tied to institutional debts. This big vision of kind of freeing the world from the evils of buy now, pay later really resonated and made a lot of sense. But then as it should do, once you release your product, you start to listen to your customers. And the reality is, and it makes a lot of sense now in hindsight. So even though the original origin story was, okay, how can I easily pay for a gift for my wife? My wife doesn't actively, I mean, she has a UPay wish list, but she's busy. There's a lot going on. And to tell the truth, it's quicker for her just to tell me what she wants for her birthday. And there's always this vision that my kids would go into Culture Kings and pick out the pair of shoes they want and set dad a UPay. Like and that happens. Like we have those use cases. Once again, it's easier for my kids is just to shoot dad a text. But then when we got the product into the hands of customers, a real true demand came from creators. So we went straight to the customers, spoke and listened to them. The creators said, look, we have all these fans who want to gift us. And there's no way of that connection occurring unless there is a product like YouPay connecting us. You can't just, as I said, tap the creator on the shoulder or text the creator and say, hey, what do you want for your birthday? You have to have a secure means of connection to connect the creator with their fan. And so it was the realization that the true product market fit was actually being driven by the creators. And thankfully, we had some merchants who aligned with creator commerce. And it really just kind of spawned from there that looking at the revenue, looking at the numbers, looking at the signups, they were all coming directly from the creators. And the more we did to listen to those creators, the more changes we made to the product, specifically look after those customers, the more successful we were. And you're right, it was about then really justifying that at every level back to the board, back to the team, demonstrating to these people who may not necessarily be buying into it, that it is going to be the right direction for the company. And then really shifting the message to say almost like, hey, we are going to change the way people shop online. We are going to have this big, bold, ambitious vision that we are going to become the wish list for everything. And if we're going to truly do that, we need to first focus on where we've got actual product market fit, which is through the creators. And we might come back one day, just like in the same way Jeff Bezos started with books and then eventually became the biggest retailer on the planet. We could start with creators and eventually over time become the wish list for everything and have the kids transacting and have the mums and dads and the partners doing everything. But to start with, we're going to focus on the customers where there's genuine demand and requirement for our product. And that's in the creator segment.
1: This episode of the Startup Podcast is brought to you by Vanta. The team at Vanta are passionate about helping you secure your business. By vastly cutting down on the time to get compliant with frameworks like ISO 27001, SOC 2, and Essential 8, Vanta lets you close deals, sleep better at night, and get back to building your product. Help yourself and help the podcast by going to tsp for an exclusive 20% off deal
0: everybody's bought into it and culturally as well i've got to say it's not just about the success of the product but for the team because like now when they wear the Upay t-shirts in the street because we're direct to consumers people are noticing our brand we're able to retain our staff because traditionally in a silicon valley tech startup people are not ambitiously thinking "Oh, i'm gonna one day work for an enterprise focused b2b solution that tries to improve an enterprise or multinational brands top line revenue that's not really an inspiring startup to work for but You say, hey, why don't you come work for Google because we're going to change the way that people use the internet? Why don't you work for Uber because we're going to change the way people commute? Or why don't you work for UPay because we're going to change the way people gift and shop online? That's pretty exciting. So it's not just about getting good customers. It's about getting good people to work for you as well.
2: Yeah, and and just to repeat some of what you said there, so the pitch to your team, the pitch to your leadership, the pitch to the board, to your investors is, A, we're listening to our intuition and our data, and we're following where the data takes us. We want to be bold and ambitious, take on the world, not be afraid to strike out our own, go get our own users, tell our own story. And the other thing you said is we're going to do this in sequence, right? We're not going to be everything to everyone at the same time. We're going to start by doing one thing really well and pick up the other tokens as we go
0: when you strike gold, keep digging. And I like to think that if you strike oil, once you've got all the oil, then you start fracking. You just really hone in on where you've got demand. And that's what I think we've realized because yeah, the kind of big ambitious thing about getting kids and parents and stuff to interact with the product, that's just going to take so long to educate. So we'll get there. But when you've got this community of Fans and creators saying, We just need something like this. We need a way to privately and securely receive gifts from our fans. Please help us. We'd be crazy not to listen to them and really hone in on that segment. And once again, ever since we've done that, it's just absolutely shifted the success and the growth of the company because there's genuine demand from these customers. They need a product like you pay.
1: There's this famous quote In theory, theory and practice are the same. In practice, they're not. And like a lot of what you're talking about, that's just really resonating with me, where it's like, You had a business plan, right? You had a spreadsheet. You had like, okay, this is our distribution partners. This is like the industry we're going to crack. This is the demand that we're going to capture and so on. And then you went out into the world and it just didn't work the way you expected it to. And this is, I think a core startup lesson, right? You're like, oh, okay. We had this vision for how the world is going to be. And we kind of built that vision. And it turns out the product wasn't quite right. The world wasn't quite ready. So what did you do? You didn't lose your vision. You didn't let go of the vision. But what you said is, what is working now? And let's focus on that. You threw out a lot of those earlier assumptions and you doubled down on what worked. And you still know what in the long term you're aiming to do. But the product that you end up building to capture that initial vision will probably be quite different from what you thought you were going to build and what you did build at the beginning. So I think there are just so many classic startup lessons to learn from this that we've spoken about a lot on this show. But really, I think your journey has kind of encapsulated quite a few of them.
0: Yeah, that's a perfect summary, I think, of what we've been able to achieve. And I think maybe a lot of that earlier upbringing that I had around building communities, everything I'd done has been around building B2C solutions, building communities, listening to customers. And I didn't do that because I understood a business model. Like I said, I started doing that when I was 15. It just made a lot of sense that if someone said, hey, I really wanted this thing in my video game, there was demand for it that I would do it. So it was actually during this transition of understanding that we should be B2C that I kind of said to myself clearly must be pretty good at that because I've had success. That's where a lot of my business success is stemmed from. So for you, Pay, I should be doing that as well. I should be focusing on that. So you've summarized it nicely, Yenav.
2: Yeah, but I do think this is more specific, though, than just learning what works. Because in a lot of startups that are stuck in this B2B to C mindset, getting customers, getting partners seems to be working. There are these people who are slow walking their way to market for you. They're giving you signs of life. They're telling you, yeah, we just need this other feature. We just need that other feature. Yeah, we're going to launch this campaign for you next week. And it seems to be working. And the instinct is to double down on that, double down on more B2B features, on more enterprise tooling, more integration. And the question is not so much actually what is working as much as it is what scales. And how do you control your destiny? You know, you've got in your post, Matt, that inspired this episode. The benefits were you can now control your own destiny. You have direct interaction with customers. You have agility and speed to market. So there's a lot of cases where this might be working. People are paying you money. They're promising to pay you money. They're promising to take you to market. They're promising that if you just add this feature, they'll buy it. But that's still not allowing you to control your own destiny and your own rate of execution. It's still not giving you a direct relationship with the customer. It's still not giving you the ability to test and be agile about your roadmap and about your brand. And so there's working and then there's working, right? I just want to really stress that because it really takes some amount of intuition, taste, experience, and ambition, boldness to understand the difference between mediocrity, working at a mediocre level and working at venture scale. And I think that's the thing that you hit on, Matt, that I really want to emphasize on on today's episode. To me, the
1: problem with the B2B2C type Distribution partnership thing. It's not about scalability. It's about the lack of customer fixation, the lack of direct channel, direct relationship, and direct focus on your end customer, right? Because I think what happens is you say, oh, we have these amazing distribution channels through to our customers. So instead of your end user, the people who actually have the shopping cart, have the wish list, instead of them being the customer that you focus on, the customer that you focus on is your distribution partner. What does this big retailer need from us? What does these folks need from us? and so what you do is you build out this distribution channel for a product that is anemic and underpowered because you are not focusing on your users so this is not like anti-channel partnerships channel partnerships b 2 b to c have their place but that place is later once you have nailed your product you have a product your users love and you're like how can we amp up our distribution of this product right but you know you talked about middlemen before matt like if you build your product for middlemen, if you listen to them more than you listen to your end users, then you're not going to have a good product. And ultimately, you might be able to get a bit of momentum early on through your schmoozy business development network. Eventually, you're going to run out of steam and you'll realize that you know it doesn't matter how much distribution you have for your shit product. It's still a shit product and people are going to stop using it. They're going to churn off. Your growth will stop. That is a lesson I take away from something like this.
0: And I think you've summarized largely what we realized. We realized that it would have been early 2023 that exactly that was occurring, that the momentum wasn't scalable at the specific stores that we were scaling in. It wasn't necessarily the B2B aspect that was scaling it. It was actually their end customers that was helping us scale. So everything you've said there is kind of what we have come to realize over an extended period of time. And I only wish I'd have known that. Well, I think I knew it, but I wish I'd had embraced it sooner But hey hindsight's twenty twenty and I should be thankful that we were able to build a product that today like a lot of startups would have maybe realized it, maybe realized it too late, or even realized it and come to the conclusion that there wasn't a B2C model to be had. I'm really thankful and excited that we actually have a product that could become B2C and we did get that adoption through those partners. And I think you're right that the partners should come later to just be a further amplification of further channel a way to get new customers when you need to. But to start with, it makes a lot of sense and it should have been the path we took at the very beginning to go straight to the customers.
2: So let's quickly talk about the outcomes for your business, Matt, and then let's rotate to maybe the common objections that the audience might be having or might have heard about why rotating to B2C as your first best strategy to go to market might be difficult. So you mentioned in your post, new user registration is up 146%. gift creation is up 56%. Organic search, people typing in you pay directly into Google is up 58%. These are pretty awesome numbers.
0: Yeah, they're exciting to see it. And I think it's because we can make these decisions ourselves without any third party impact on those decisions, because it used to be exactly as you described, that every time we'd say, oh, why don't we do this? Because everyone wants it. Oh, wait a second. This particular merchant wouldn't be able to do that. We need to pass that data to them in a certain format. Why don't we change the way people register to make it easier? Oh, no, we need to still support this other external party. So just really having the destiny in your own hands, it allows for things to happen faster also better buy-in so once again going back to kind of culturally for a small team like we're only a team of eight people globally so five people in australia three people internationally but then just really the team feeling like they can say hey here's an idea instead of us being like i'll have to run that up the chain and speak to 15 merchants before we can even consider that it's like that sounds awesome let's do it and by the next day it's live and operational and getting direct feedback from the customers So you get better buy-in, everything's quicker to do. For me, it's a better way to run a startup and it creates a more exciting atmosphere for the whole group.
2: Yeah, we've talked about on the show before that startups are about ownership and full stack accountability. And this is true for the individuals working in the startup. It's true for the squads in the startup and it's true for the product and the business model. And this is really one of the advantages. All right, Matt. Well, this has been a super, super awesome conversation. Thank you for revealing some of the secrets behind the UPay story and your rotation to B2C. It's been awesome to have you. Thanks so much, Chris. Thanks, Yannick. It's been awesome. Yeah, thanks for the opportunity. Don't forget, if you've been listening to a few of our episodes and getting value, you have implicitly signed up to the Startup Podcast Pact which asks you to please follow and review the podcast in your favorite podcasting app. Check us out on YouTube and share the podcast with your friends on your favorite social network. It helps us grow and help more founders. Cheers, guys. Thanks for coming on. All right, awesome, mate. See you later. This episode of the Startup Podcast was brought to you by Vanta.
1: Vanta helps businesses get and stay compliant by automating up to 90% of the work for the most in-demand compliance frameworks. With over 200 integrations, you can easily monitor and secure the tools your business relies on. Head to tsp for 20% off their incredible offering and start unlocking extra revenue today. This episode of the Startup Podcast is brought to you by Coda. I met Shishir, the founder of Coda, in its early days, and he told me they were reinventing documents from the ground up. They have absolutely done that, folks. Coda brings together the best of documents, spreadsheets, and apps into a single platform that really reimagines the document. One thing we wanted to emphasize today is the way that Coda can help your startup with planning, with strategy, with tracking goals. If you think about how hard it is to stay aligned around documents, roadmaps, OKRs, planning cycles, Coda is the perfect place to bring all this together. It has integrations automations all sorts of powerful tools and templates that allow your team to stay on the same page and if you listen to this podcast you know how absolutely critical that is Coda really is a fantastic platform and exclusively for listeners of the startup podcast Coda have a special offer where you can get $1,000 of free credit if you sign up today support the podcast and your own startup by going to coda.io slash tsp for the startup podcast and get started for free and get a $1,000 credit coda.io slash tsp